Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 256. 256 is the area code serving parts of northern Alabama. 1956, IBM invented the first ever hard disk drive. And America's first modern shopping mall opened in Edina, Minnesota. I don't understand how parents can lose their kids in a mall. Seriously, any tips? Greatly appreciated. Welcome to the 256th episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Matt Klein, the founder of The Overshoot, a premium subscription service dedicated to tracking the global economy. We discussed with Matt the state of play regarding inflation and the financial markets, trends playing out across the global economy, and his thoughts on economic and financial impact of demographic change. Oh my God, that just sounded so highbrow. I'm a not a primitive, heavy-browed, I don't know, arrested adolescent prop with erectile dysfunction who will be starched from the gene pool if people have their way. No, I interview people with subscription financial products that understand global markets. What's happening? What's happening? We witnessed a historic weekend. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, essentially leading a mercenary army of somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people, turned direction turned around and decided he was going to march on Moscow. And the most shocking part of all of this was that in uh, Rostov von Don, he was welcomed, even cheered on. Uh, this has revealed Putin as being exceptionally weak and also um, that his grip on power was a lot looser than we had thought. It also brings to light how much nuclear weapons matter, that you can be a gas station posing as an economy, but if you have 10,000 nuclear warheads and a reputation for um, having your enemies fall out of windows, you carry a much bigger stick than you deserve. So what is being said around what happened here? A Russian state broadcaster wrote on her Telegram channel, the choice was between bad and monstrous, you know, a series of decisions around bad decisions. Ukrainian President Zelensky said the bosses of Russia do not control anything, nothing at all, complete chaos. Putin says he let the mutiny take place as far as it did to avoid bloodshed. President Biden says we had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. They're keeping uh, probably appropriately quiet. If there's a train wreck of your enemies, just stay out of the way. Our favorite geopolitical expert, Ian Bremer, writes, it undermines Putin's ability to govern, requiring greater state control of the population with the attendant surveillance and further mobilization required to uh, enforce it. I just can't, I, I don't think anyone saw this coming. Supposedly our intelligence apparatus knew something was up with it. 
uh, Prigozhin might be planning something. But this in illegal invasion, although I would argue almost any invasion is illegal, this invasion has been a total disaster. It's hard to imagine a world leader that has fallen further faster than Putin over the last 14 months. First off, uh, the invasion just didn't go very well and isn't going well. And two, his mercenary army, uh, he doesn't appear to have control of it. And he had to call on someone he doesn't have a lot of respect for, Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, to step in and negotiate a resolution. And what will happen with this resolution? You got to think that Prigozhin's days are numbered, that without, without an army taking his command, I don't know how he doesn't end up in jail or dead. Or it strikes me that, uh, hey, here's your new corner office, and it has a big window, and it's on the 11th floor. Uh, this I can't imagine that this uh, individual is going to be sleeping very well at night. It also just shows that Putin is a paper bear, if you will, that sitting on a lot of oil and putting in place a series of kind of mini criminal gangs that he controls through fear, no real ideology, no real prosperity other than the prosperity concentrated among a few elites, so to speak, in Russia. This was just a very weak foundation uh, that is collapsing fast or appears to be collapsing fast. Also, real shout out to all the people on the far right and all the uh, Putin apologists and sycophants who said that we should negotiate with Putin and that we had to face the reality of of the war and the strength of the ferocious Russian army, uh, they could not have been more wrong. And the U.S. administration, in conjunction with its allies overseas, and obviously uh, on the front end, the heroic valor of the Ukrainian army has just has absolutely sent a signal to the world, including China, who probably had designs on invading Taiwan, that when the West binds together, our weapons, our strategies, our technology, our communications, our resilience, our ability to cooperate and bind together are unrivaled. Uh, the other winners here, I would argue, are India, who has been able to garner very cheap oil by playing the West off against Russia, and what looks like a GDP run that might rival or at least have echoes of China's economic run over the last 20 years. But the nation that people aren't talking about as much that has grown its economy faster in the last year than any large economy, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And here's the reality. They sit on trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars in oil reserves. They have pivoted from Islamism and terrorism. It used to be a cold war with Iran and a hot war with Yemen. And MBS has pivoted to capitalism, which is the kind of the gangster economic construct and the way to exert influence. Well, how does that influence exert it? Everything from bringing the most famous soccer player in the world to the kingdom to hosting the World Cup. Well, that was Qatar. It's regional, but you're going to see, I would believe, I believe the kingdom is going to get the, the World Cup in probably 2030. They're creeping takeover of the U.S. sports, specifically Liv's takeover of the PGA. They are now exerting their power in the tennis world or their influence, you're going to see a massive, a massive migration of human capital uh, to Riyadh. When I was in Riyadh a couple months ago, I was struck by how many people, talented people from Asia and Europe had moved to Dubai and were now moving to Riyadh because a decent strategy for economic security is to find the biggest pile of money and stand as close as you can to it. And the biggest pile of money in the world right now is in Riyadh. We are spending about $550 billion on our Infrastructure Act here in the U.S. or over there in the U.S. I'm in London today. And when I was in Riyadh, some officials took me through seven projects that are above a trillion dollars each. 
I mean, they're building a city, Neom, which in comparison, they want Dubai to feel like a small, cute village. I mean, they have unbelievable ambitions because here's the bottom line. They have about 30 or 40 years to pivot. Why? The good news is they sit on the Pacific Ocean of oil. The bad news is it's going to run out at some point. So they have three, four, five decades to pivot to a non-fossil fuel-based economy, education, tourism. They're trying to get big into the gaming industry, entertainment, uh, services. And they are saying, all right, this is the good news. We have an unlimited supply of capital, but we the bad news is we have to get out of our existing business. And this notion that we're going to wave our finger at them and lecture them, okay, a vocal minority will do that. And then 98% of the rest of the world is going to decide to work with them. I think we should restore relations or we should absolutely give a big bear hug to India and also normalize relations. And we do. We don't like to say this, but we have actually military bases in the kingdom, but encourage more commerce between the two nations because these two nations are going to play an increasingly important role. And China fucked up here. They bet on the wrong cowboy, specifically a cowboy that runs around on a horse with his shirt off, but quite frankly, underneath that facade of masculinity is a guy who's remarkably flaccid and losing power. This is a wonderful moment for the West. We are standing with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Our economy is still relevant. Who the hell is doing better than the U.S. right now, geopolitically? This really has kind of reasserted U.S. hegemony, and that is we are still the leader. We are still the free leader. We are on the side of the righteous. We fuck up all the time, but the arc of America bends toward justice. This is a wonderful moment for us. No one could have seen this coming. Uh, we had our own insurrection, but I would argue it was mostly a few thousand crazies who were whipped up by Fox and a corrupt criminal president. But you don't see Northrop Grumman or the Navy marching towards Washington, D.C., threatening to overthrow the government with weapons, for God's sakes. I mean, this got very scary very fast or very strange very fast. But again, uh, to sum it up, go USA. This is a wonderful moment for the West. We should feel proud of ourselves. In America, we love to raise a generation of young people who don't like America. But guess what? Guess what? This matters. And this was handled really well by the U.S. and her allies. This is a great moment for us. We make the best weapons. We have the best intelligence. We back the right horses. And we aren't afraid of a murderous autocrat just because a bunch of people on the right or libertarians, so-called libertarians, think we should negotiate and be an apologist. No Neville Chamberlains in this administration. We'll be right back for our conversation with Matt Klein. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Wow. 
that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Matt Klein, the founder of The Overshoot and co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Matt, where does this podcast find you? I'm in San Francisco. Uh, nice. So unprecedented velocity and rate increases over the last uh, five, six quarters. Give us your thoughts on the state of the markets and sort of unintended consequences and second order effects of these rate hikes. So the, the context here is that basically since about 2008, 2009, you've had interest rates being very, very low. And you have a whole you know, half generation or so of, of people, consumers and businesses and investors being used to this low rate environment. And there are a lot of reasons why interest rates were low and that made sense at that time. But people built up a whole set of expectations about what was normal, what, what they should be, you know, what were sort of the range of possible outcomes. And then very quickly, you have a very uh, sharp disruption to those expectations and interest rates move you know, in the grand scheme of things, you look at like a long-term chart of interest rates, you think five percentage points, maybe not that much. But, you know, zooming in on the past 15 years or whatever, if you're used to, you know, the short-term interest rates, you know, the cash or whatever being essentially zero, and, you know, even at the longer-term interest rates, maybe not going above three, it's sort of the upper end, and then suddenly everything is about five, that is going to have a really big impact on a lot of people. Um This isn't the first time that's happened, by the way. Uh You can go back to like the 1960s, you have a similar dynamic of... A lot of businesses, you know, for a very long time used to, you know, interest rates just didn't go very high. And then as inflation started to build in the 1960s, you know, before oil shocks or anything like that, that put upward pressure on interest rates. It put pressure on banks that had made all these loans at, you know, 6% and they, you know, took deposits at 3%. And you can read reports in the time about how, you know, much trouble they were getting into. And so there, that's just, you know, that adjustment is going to be challenging. I mean, the good news is that, you know, as, as was the case then and, you know, as is the case now, I mean, the, a lot of other parts of the economy are doing relatively well. So on the, there, there are going to be losses. Um, I mean, clearly we've seen, you know, some banks having those issues, but at the same time, you know, job growth is still pretty robust. Wage growth is still reasonably healthy. There hasn't been a huge reliance on borrowing to, to fund consumer spending in the past few years compared to previous expansions. It really has been coming much more out of either income growth or money that had been saved during the pandemic. And stocks have been, you know, compared to the peak at, you know, sort of the end of 2021, kind of flat, right? But flat is a lot better than, you know, down substantially. I mean, so I, I think in that sense, there is a sort of recognition that there's these big countervailing forces here. Um, there's some big losses for some individual sectors, but so far it seems that things are sort of, you know, muddling through, even if, you know, you know, a few particular banks have gotten overextended and are getting blown up. So it feels as if we were a month away from recession for the last 18 months. And yet, as we sit here, uh, unemployment at historic lows, the real estate market has been shockingly strong. The markets, as you've pointed out, seem somewhat resilient. 
Is this the recession that never happened? Or do you still think uh, we're looking at a recession sometime later in the year, 2024? What is your recognizing? No one has a crystal ball here. What, what would you, where would you put your money right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great question. And I mean, if you think, if you look back to right before the Federal Reserve began raising interest rates, the expectation that they had, the expectation that was priced in the markets is that they would maybe, maybe raise interest rates by, you know, two percentage points over the course of 2022. And they ended up doing almost five percentage points. And, you know, one might have thought if you'd known at the beginning of 2022, what they actually ended up doing relative to what people thought was, you know, reasonable expectation, you think, wow, that's going to really tank the economy. And yet that's not what happened, as, as you said. So, you know, I, I think this gets back to the, the question of normally the way that channel is supposed to work is that, if you make borrowing more expensive and you make it more attractive for people to just hold cash in a bank account as opposed to, you know, buying things that create jobs and income, then that's going to slow the economy down and that's going to have all these attendant effects. And yet that doesn't seem to really have had the impact, even with the housing market, which is the most obviously sensitive interest rates and your mortgage rates going from below 3% to almost 7%. And that did have a notable impact on house prices in some areas are down. Housing activity in terms of new construction has come down substantially. And yet, it seems like we've already found the floor. Uh, you look at the data from May, uh, the most recent month that we have, and it already seems as if, you know, home sales and home construction are picking up again. Uh, and it suggests to me, I mean, there, you know, there, again, there was this sort of big painful one-time reset, but people have managed to sort of get through it because underlying wage growth is still strong. There wasn't that much, I guess there wasn't that much, you know, reliance on borrowing. You know, if you compare this to say like 2000, five, six, seven, eight, there you had a situation where so much of consumer spending was dependent on people borrowing against rising home values. And so as soon as that was no longer possible, you had this downward cascade very quickly. That wasn't really the case this time around. Um, you had this big cash injection from the federal government as a consequence of you know, responding to the pandemic and, and trying to make sure that we didn't have a financial crisis because we all had to stay home um, in the first months of, you know, 2020. And then people saved money from that. The economy recovered. Um, you had, you know, more cash injections to really tur turbocharge the recovery. And then at that point, you had a, a pretty healthy situation where, you know, the economy hasn't fully normalized, but it mostly gotten back to normal. And then people have the extra cash that's available. And that's that seems to have really been, you know, a helpful cushion. I mean, you could argue from you know, the Federal Reserve's perspective, it's unhelpful because it means they have to push harder to get the results that they want. But, you know, to your point, I mean, to the extent that you might think that, oh, we're going to have a, you know, economic downturn, it seems like this has really been preventing that. And all the things, the channels you might be worrying about for a downturn, you know, it, I mean, obviously, you know, things could happen and, you know, the Fed might decide they want to, you know, keep squeezing, but their ultimate priority is to get inflation back in a line. And if they think inflation is going to come back in a line without the economy going into a downturn, they're not going to, they have no interest in overdoing it. Um, you know, that's where it gets really kind of a tricky question is, you know, can that happen? So we had what I think will be described as this, this pretty serious geopolitical shock, even if it ends up, I mean, I, I, I remember this, the, this past weekend, it's just like, I just don't think anyone was prepared for what happened or when went down in Russia. Have you thought through what kind of the direct impact or the second order effects on the markets might be? Well, what happened this weekend is really tricky, an interesting question because I'm not even sure we know exactly what happened and, you know, whether it's even over uh, in that sense. So uh, I think, you know, zooming out a little bit, what's interesting is that as the war has progressed and, you know, obviously it's been extremely disruptive to people who live in Ukraine um, and a lot of Ukraine's neighbors, but 
you know, things, you know, the sort of that initial shock, people have managed to adapt in various ways. Um, you know, the, you know, the energy markets got rerouted, food, you know, there was also helpful that, you know, there was a very good harvest in places like Argentina and Australia and the Southern Hemisphere, wheat producing countries. But in general, there was a degree of which after that initial shock thing, you know, sort of passed the worst. You know, that surprise happened. Once you, once you have the surprise, that's what, that's what matters for markets, the surprise. But once you, once it's happened, you know, the surprise is over. I mean, it's still obviously very destructive. It's terrible for the people who live in Ukraine. Um, you know, obviously you'd want the war to end soon. Um, but that, you know, and the impact on markets seems to sort of stabilize there. And one of the things that was sort of always a possibility once the war started is what would the impact be on Russia internally? I mean, the specifics of what happened this weekend might have been very surprising and unanticipated, but I mean, the idea that you start a war that ends up being relatively unpopular domestically and because it doesn't end the way you expect it to, you have to conscript a lot of people, you have a huge wave of emigration, it doesn't seem to be going the way you want it to. The idea that that creates some kind of instability at home, that in of itself is not inherently surprising. It's just a question of how it plays out. And then, you know, who ends up winning, what kind of conflicts are, what what the next person would be like. I mean, that kind of possibility presents itself. You see this, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be the first time in Russian history that you're fighting someone else and then it goes badly and then there's a revolution at home. So obviously what happened this weekend didn't play out the way it did in, say, 1905 or, or 1917. But, you know, that that, that possibility sort of created itself as soon as the, the war started. And so, you know, looking ahead, the question is, well, is it more likely that something like this will be successful in the future? And if so, like, who would be the kind of person to take over? And what would that mean? I mean, that's where it gets, I don't know if we've learned anything new in that sense. And that's really what, you know, what the impact for markets is. Like, that risk was always there um, once the war started. And so that's sort of my my initial perspective. But again, we don't even know exactly what happens. So in a war, if it's over, so that makes it challenging. So we think of it, switching gears, we think a lot about sort of population implosion or depopulation or more specifically how uh, ideally we should create more opportunities for young people such that they can afford should they choose to to have children. You've actually spent a decent amount of time focused on how demographic change affects societies, politics, markets. Can you say more about what is playing out in the U.S.? Sure. So the getting some sort of little historical perspective here is that after, you know, basically after World War II, you have a big increase in um, populations and particularly populations of young people, the baby boom, you know, in the U.S., in Europe, and in, in much of much of the world, um, in Asia. And that process more or less peaked around the 1970s in terms of the, the child boom and, and the share of younger people uh, in the total population. And since then, we've had basically a shift as that cohort ages, the population of, you know, what we conventionally think of as working age people, you know, sort of 20s to 60s, depending upon, you know, where you draw the exact cutoff, um, peaked uh, as a share of the total in a lot of places sometime around, you know, either 90s or 2000s or 2010s, depending on where exactly you're looking. And if we use sort of standard population forecasts from places like the United Nations, which, you know, if you figure who's already alive, you can do a pretty good sense of what, you know, who's going to be alive in the future, more or less, you know, based on, you know, trends in life expectancy. And you say, okay, well, it looks as if the share of people who are going to be in, we think it was prime working age or is going to be falling as a share of the population. A lot of places, the share of people who are over the age of 65 or over the age of 70 is going to be rising a lot. In a lot of places, the share of people who are under the age of 15 is going to be, has been falling. And it's probably going to continue to fall pretty substantially in a lot of places. 
And then the question is, what does that what does that mean, um, you know, for society and and for markets and everything else? And you know, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of variation depending on where you're looking. So the more extreme cases are places like China, certain parts of Europe, where you're actually going to see outright population decline, and particularly op- outright population decline for people of sort of what do you think was the working age. So if we take the UN forecasts seriously, the number of people in China aged you know twenty to sixty five, twenty to seventy is going to fall by something around half uh, by, between now and the end of the century. It's already been falling and is going to fall, which is, un- we've not seen something like this before. Uh, you look at a place like the U.S., actually, it, it's relatively more benign. I mean, th- part of this is sensitive to forecasts about immigration and things like that. But, you know, in, in principle, in the U.S., you're going to see a situation where the total population will rise on net, a lot of it's going to be elderly, but you're still going to, the absolute number of people in sort of the 20s to 60s cohort is going to be rising small, you know, flat to rising. Either way, though, you're going to have some distributional challenges because in every society, you have a situation where there's some people who are producing more than they consume, so essentially people who are working, and then you have people who consume more than they produce, which are, you know, children, elderly, the disabled, things like that. And so, you know, that's fine. That's what living in a society is. Um, but obviously, if you have a big change in the balance between, you know, one group versus the other group, that's going to create some challenges in terms of, well, how are you going to distribute the cost of the lower living standards? Because if you have a situation where everyone is, or lots of people are net producers, then, you know, the workers can retain a lot of what they, they produce, they can consume a lot, and the people who are dependent on them can also live very well, because it's they're a relatively small, you know, burden or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a situation where you have a relatively small share of people who are who are doing most of the production, then that, that creates, you know, some challenges. That having been said, it doesn't necessarily tell you the outcome. You look at Japan, I think it's really the, on- the only real example we have of a country that's already sort of gone ahead with this demographic transition, or at least, um, you know, they're, they're further ahead in the process in a lot of other places, and then give you a sense of what, you know, one way of dealing with it. And I think that actually is a very healthy model uh, that we should you know, to the extent that we're going to see that, or Europeans are going to see that, or what have you, I think that's very encouraging, which is they ended up just increasing the share of people with jobs. You know, they historically had relatively low share of, of women in the, in the paid employment workforce, and that's changed a lot very dramatically in the past 10 years. You also have a situation in Japan where people, you know, partly this is a you know function of the fact they have a, you know, high-quality uh, health system and generally, you know, healthy uh, lifestyles, but you know, people are able to be working in productive members of society and, and, and in paid employment, you know, increasingly longer. And, you know, the extent that one of the problems we've seen in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere of people who are older and no longer in paid employment feeling sense of loneliness uh, or, you know, feeling like they're not, they don't have things to do. I mean, that's actually, you know, could be a very constructive solution. Um, and so, you know, how it all plays out, I think, is very sensitive on, you know, what the specific, you know, social institutional contexts are in each, in each country. And, you know, but it's really, I think it's something that, you know, has to be thought of and something that we can, we can choose to do well or do poorly. But I mean, you know, it's definitely going to be, I think, a major theme. The good news is that these are slow moving changes, but it's definitely going to be a major theme, I think, you know, in the decades ahead. So given the shifts in the global economy, where do you see opportunity uh, from an investment standpoint? That's a very tricky question. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a potentially, question. yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are lots of play. I mean, you know, having long ago worked uh, in investment briefly, I mean, the trick is what is already priced in versus what you think. So you can say, oh, this is going to be a great opportunity. But if the market's already discounting that or, you know, more than discounting that, then you're not going to make money doing that. So that's very challenging. Um, 
I think it was late 2021 or very, very beginning of 2022. There was some, you know, report that was put out of, oh, you know, it was a really undervalued market is Russian stocks. You know, they traded a very, very low P ratio. Turns out that there was, you know, didn't know why, but it turns out that <laughs> there's a reason for that, right? If you had bought Russian stocks and you think, oh, they're so cheap, but then they got a lot cheaper. So um, I'm relatively optimistic about, you know, the U.S. economy right now, actually. But, you know, whether that translates into very good returns on buying U.S. assets right now is, I think, sort of a different question. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a view on that, that angle, but I, I do think actually there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the U.S. I think we've been seeing, aside from the fact that sort of the macro picture is overall healthy where you don't really have this issue of, you know, consumer debt being a problem and you, you have relatively strong growth and employment. You also have this real uptick in, um, investment. There's a boom in, in the construction of, of factories, uh, particularly related to semiconductor fabs and electronics and things related to the green transition. You have, it looks like a big increase in, in equipment investment for things related to that as well. And so I think, you know, and it's really only just getting started, I think. So that I think is another reason to be relatively optimistic. Turning that into investment is a different story, but, you know. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We spend a lot of time talking about inequality. Do you think the problems surrounding inequality are overstated, understated? You write a lot about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yes. So, first of all, I do think inequality is actually a serious issue. I think it's also a serious issue, not just from like the social perspective or sense of fairness or whatever, but also I think macroeconomically significant. You know, I wrote a book with Michael Pettis called Trade Wars Are Class Wars. And that was a big part of the thesis was that changes in the income distribution or the big increase in inequality that we've seen over the past several decades actually had these really severe macroeconomic effects and explains a lot of the problems that people associated with trade and globalization. And that one of the perverse consequences of this was that we had situations where people in many countries were blaming foreigners for things that actually were really, um, you know, they were on the same side, essentially that, you know, as, as we were in the book that, you know, the typical person in the U.S. might think that 
a typical person in China was someone taking advantage of them, but actually it was the opposite. It was that the typical person in the U.S. and the typical person in China had very similar interests and were being taken advantage of by, you know, elites in both of their countries who were effectively working together against them. And so that, I think, is a very serious issue. That having been said, I do think that, at least in some places, the past couple of years have actually been somewhat helpful, um, sort of counterintuitively. Um, I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a big concern about this, and I remember sharing that concern that, you know, because of who was suffering from job losses and, you know, what the nature of what could be done from home versus not, that you had the situation where inequality was going to get a lot worse and there'd be this huge, you know, it, all of the negative trends of basically you saw since the 80s were going to be reinforced and exacerbated. And yet, that doesn't seem to have happened. And I'm not I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I think there's a variety of factors. I think it depends on what place you're looking at. Um, but certainly in the U.S., one thing that's really interesting is that, you know, economists have just been looking into this and that people in the lower half of the income distribution have actually seen the biggest real income gains. Uh, and that, you know, there has been a, there has been a real compression in wage inequality. And, you know, which I think is a very healthy development. I think it's one of the reasons why the economy, at least particularly in the U.S., the consumer spending has been relatively robust and hasn't depended on credit growth to the same extent. I mean, we saw credit card debt fall. It's it's come back a bit, but it's still sort of below where you would have expected naively based on the pre-pandemic trend. The, I think the, the interesting question is, is this sort of a one-off shift or is this sort of part of a sustained, persistent change in, in the trend? But I think that could be, you know, a potentially healthy development. I think globally, if we look, there's like still plenty of room for improvement. I think one of the things that's disappointing is the um, the Chinese government's reaction to the pandemic, where essentially they did not provide any kind of income support uh, to people who were affected uh, in the beginning. There was no real unemployment benefits whatsoever. You had tens of millions of people who'd been living in the cities uh, returning to the countryside as um, essentially become subsistence farmers. And that had knock-on effects there of very, very weak consumer spending in China basically over the past several years. And so I think that's a serious problem, you know, for them and, and by extension for people in the rest of the world. But I think at least in some places in the U.S. and I think um, possibly in, you know, Europe as well, we've seen sort of a, the beginnings of what might, what might be called a healthy rebalancing. So I'll put forward a series of theses and you tell me where I got it right or wrong or what you disagree with or agree with. The U.S., relatively speaking, has, hasn't been this strong since the end of World War II relative to its competitive set. I think that might be right. I mean, I think one thing that's, you know, in general, when people talk about like the size of, you know, the economies and, you know, it's the U.S., the biggest in the world, I think that's not really, I think that in some ways is like too narrow a view. People say, oh, is the U.S. economy bigger than the Chinese economy or what have you? And it's like, that's not really how it would play out in, in the grand scheme of things. You really want to look at like, what is the broader set of countries that are, you know, allied and friendly with each other? And if you think about that, and there are different ways of defining it, but like, the U.S. alone is certainly in a very, I think, relatively good position. But certainly if we think about the U.S. and, you know, Canada and Europe and Australia and Japan and Korea and all that, like that's a very large block and is by far the dominant block economically in the world. I think we've seen with uh, the impact of the way the sanctions on Russia were imposed. I mean, the Russians were, I think, very surprised that the Europeans and the Asian democracies were willing to go as far as they did. I think that was sort of their strategy based on what happened after 2014 was that if anyone would do anything, it would be the U.S., but otherwise no one else would. And I think if that is what had happened, then they would have been fine. But that's not what happened, and I think we, you know, we're seeing the impact of that. And so there are other you know large economic 
you know, economies or sort of individually, if you look at like country by country. But I think if you look at sort of these broader blocks, I think that the, you know, the the global alliance of democracies that they said there there is a sort of cohesive, you know, the G7 plus um, is, I think, very strong. I think people now say like, oh, well, you know, it's still weak compared, you know, people talk about the rise of China. And obviously China is a very large country. It's a very, um, it has some very sophisticated te- uh, technology companies there and diversified manufacturing base. But at the same time, if people think about, I think there's a little bit of historical amnesia about what people were saying about the Soviet Union in, say, the 50s and 60s, where, I mean, that was a society that created, that was ahead of the U.S. in the space race. You know, you know, the people talk about the Sputnik moment. I mean, that was that was what it was. Was that was actually significant advances relative to what you know we were able to do at the time. If you think about the relative population sizes and relative economic way, it's actually that the Soviet Union was at the time considered a very serious you know, pure competitor threat. And I think if we're thinking about it from that kind of comparison, I don't, yeah, I think that the democracies now are in a very, you know, strong shape. Obviously not cause for complacency or anything, but also you don't need to be, I don't think one needs to be necessarily alarmed and, and you know, fear of, you know, losing one's status or primacy, I think is also something that, you know, would be unnecessary given sort of these relative um, power balances. And so... Greatest self-inflicted wounds geopolitically, I think most people would say it's probably been Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I would argue number two would probably be Brexit. And I know you've written about Brexit. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I completely agree. Brexit was totally unnecessary. Uh, I, there was a really good paper that was written a few years ago that I, I remember writing about when I when I found it. And they, what they did was the um, they were looking at the change in the share of votes for the UK Independence Party, which doesn't exist anymore. But basically, that's like a pretty good predictor of who later ended up voting for Brexit. And it turns out that the, within the UK, the places where you had the biggest increase in, in share for UKIP were the places that had the biggest cuts to social services during the period of austerity after uh, David Cameron and the Tory uh, Lib Dem coalition came to power in 2010. And so there was actually a very, very clear relationship between, you know, the financial crisis happens, this new government comes in, they, they think the big problem is that the government budget deficit is too large, the government debt is too big, and they're going to try to cut back as much as they can. And they really cut back the most on local government support services, things like, you know, mental health or social housing, stuff like that. And so, you know, they, he did some basic simulation of, like, well, what, what if we sort of imagine what would have happened if there hadn't been these cuts, there hadn't been the that increase in UKIP and the extent that the increase in UKIP predicted the Brexit vote share, which it, it did pretty well, like what would have happened and Remain would have won quite handily. So Brexit, I think, was a, a large mistake in the extent that I don't think they've gained anything. I think most people in the UK, you look at the polling, say they don't think they've gained anything really meaningful. A lot of the substantial majorities say that they wish they had some kind of closer relationship with the EU than they have now, not necessarily to rejoin, but, you know, this thing is, I think I saw recently it was like 70% want some kind of closer connection than what they have now so i think that was definitely a mistake and i think it's interesting that that was very much tied into the sort of macroeconomic policy mistake of you have this financial crisis this extremely disruptive event lots of people thrown into work and the response is we're going to cut back on you know government support for a lot of people who really need it and to varying degrees you saw that kind of mistake in lots of places uh in the uk i think it was among the more severe, and that's how it manifested itself. But you see that in Europe. You saw things like that happen in the U.S. as well. I mean, it's just, I think that was really, people didn't, wouldn't have thought of in the context of geopolitics, but I think that was all, I mean, that was a horrific mistake, and the 2010s in many ways were a lost decade that was self-inflicted as a result. 
A horrific mistake. Matt Klein is the founder of The Overshoot, a premium subscription service dedicated to tracking the global economy and the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. At the beginning of his career, Matt worked in global macro investment research at Bridgewater Associates. Following this, he was a research associate in international economic and financial history at the Council on Foreign Relations. He joined us from his home in San Francisco. Matt, we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Algebra of happiness. Are you floating? I spent a year of my life just kind of floating. Actually, I think I spent several years. The first time was right out of UCLA. I got a job at Morgan Stanley in the two-year analyst program, and then I got out, and I didn't feel like I had the grades or I didn't have the confidence to apply to business school yet. So I was living with my mom, and I just wasn't doing a whole lot. I was just sort of floating, didn't know what I wanted to do. And and then again, when I moved to New York after, I think it was 2000, after the dot bomb implosion, and I was trying to get my life back together, floating a little bit, but at least had some purpose. It was just taking a while to get going. But that year after kind of 24 to 25, I was sort of floating. And if you're floating, I think you want to take advantage of the fact that there are some amazing organizations, such as the Peace Corps, that offer an opportunity that while you're trying to figure things out, you can do something in the agency of something bigger than yourself, and which is a decent, I think, definition of purpose. And I also think that's true of the armed services. I've kind of come full circle in the armed services. I used to think that that would be a terrible thing for a young person and having been exposed to now a number of veterans and people in the armed services. I know a lot of young men and young women who, quite frankly, are floating, and then they go into the armed services and they find purpose and meaning and connection and also AmeriCorps. Um, I think it's a decent idea if you're a young person and you find yourself floating for one, two, or three months to take advantage of some of the amazing organizations that our federal government offers that where you can serve in the agency of something bigger than yourself. Are you floating? Are you floating? There's options out there. This episode was produced by Caroline Chagrin. Jennifer Sanchez is our associate producer, and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Box Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday for No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly market show. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.